Hello and welcome to Abscond with Ethan Renault. This episode was recorded at Waterstone Community Church at uh, their youth group event on a Wednesday night a few weeks ago. I was talking about um, how do we address violence, slavery, and the treatment of women in the Bible because they don't seem up to date by today's standards. Um, in fact, there are several passages that seem outright offensive and things that we should not listen to or practice or believe. So how do we address those passages was the topic of this. And I wanted to obviously make it understandable for high schoolers, which it is. So it's very uh, superficial overview. It doesn't go super deep, but it, it hopefully provides a couple good answers or ways to think through um, how do we address difficult passages in the Bible when we come across them? The entire audio was recorded on an iPhone across the room from where I was speaking, so it's a little bit echoey. I started off the message, and this part got cut off, so I have to tell you it now, but I started off the message by uh, listing off a bunch of old laws from different states in the United States of America. Uh, which we think are crazy and I made some up and then the students had to guess is this a real law that actually existed or did Ethan make this one up for instance in North Carolina is it illegal to have a meeting when you're dressed in a costume and the answer is yes and the context is because they wanted to discourage the meeting of the Ku Klux Klan. So it was so they made that law. So the law seems silly initially, but when you understand the context, it makes a lot more sense. So I read off like 10 different laws like that, that makes sense when you understand the context, even if it sounds silly. Like you can't ride a camel down the sidewalk in Kansas or something like that. So that's the part that got cut off at the beginning, just so that you're caught up when I start talking. Uh, other than that, I hope this is helpful and enjoy the message. costumes to gather together because they're probably forming hateful conspiracies or something like that and we want to stand against those things right so when we look at them in the context in which those laws came about they make a lot more sense right but it's still funny to look at them today from where we stand in history and kind of make fun of them um, and the issue is a lot of people do that exact same thing with the Bible those laws were all written like 50, 100 years ago, but when we read the Bible, we're reading a book that's between two and 3,000 years old. That's a lot older than these crazy laws we just looked at. So when we read it, we have to understand how to read it correctly, how to understand it and interpret it so that we don't kind of just laugh at it and make fun of it, or worse, just kind of dismiss it because it doesn't make sense to us, we don't get it, it's offensive to us, or it says things we don't agree with. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Before we dive in and look at it, I'm going to pray for us, and we'll get started. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we do have a way to know you, and it is through the Bible, these words that you've given us. I pray that we could grow to understand it more. God, that this, this message tonight would be helpful in how we understand you, connect with you, and relate to you. Um, just teach us all something new tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So a lot of people read the Bible like Richard Dawkins. He's a really famous atheist. He's written a lot of books, and they're all kind of along the same lines. So I have a quote from him, and it might sound like something you guys have heard before. Richard Dawkins says, The God of the Old Testament 
is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. He's obviously referring to the Bible as fiction. Uh, jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. Now those are pretty hard words, right? He's talking about the God of the Bible who we believe in. And we don't believe that God is angry and jealous and petty and unforgiving. We kind of believe the opposite of that. So how can someone read the Bible and come away with this opinion, and we read the Bible and come away with an entirely different opinion? It doesn't really make sense, right? So there are passages in the Bible that if we don't know the context, that's going to be the word that we keep coming back to tonight, context. If we don't know the context of when the Bible was written, how it was written, who it was written by, then we're going to come away with the same opinion as Richard Dawkins and say, this doesn't make any sense to me, therefore God is just evil, wicked, petty, jealous, and so on. So I wanted to look at, uh, especially the Old Testament, how we can understand some of the verses which seem super crazy. Like there's no way that this could be written by a God who is loving and who is merciful. But in order to first understand that, we have to understand what is the Bible? When we pick it up, like you guys probably have them in your houses, maybe your bedrooms, maybe you read yours occasionally, we hope you do. Um, what is the Bible? Maybe you've never even asked that question, like, did it just fall out of the sky one day and someone said, hey, this is the word of God? No, so let's talk for a second about what is the Bible and then how we can best understand it. And then we're going to look at three of the major issues people have with it. And I'll give you a preview. Those are uh, slavery the mistreatment of women in the Bible, and then violence, how God allows or even encourages violence in the Bible. How do we address those things? So first, what is the Bible? The Bible is a library of books. Um, some of you maybe grew up in the church, and you're like, yeah, we know. Some of you maybe didn't know this. There are 66 different books in the Bible. A lot of them are written by different people. So it's not just one person who just wrote the entire Bible. There's a lot of different authors who wrote 66 books which come together to make up the Bible. And as such, we have different voices. There's different genres. Um, some people wrote poetry, and that poetry made it into the Bible. Other people wrote history, and that history made it into the Bible. And let me ask you a question. If you're reading a history textbook and you're reading a, poet, a poem, are you going to read them the same way? Or are you going to have different expectations for a poem versus a history textbook? So understanding which genre in the Bible you're reading is going to be super helpful. We also have law. This is how people are supposed to live in this society. Um, there's letters written from one person to another person. There's wisdom literature, and there's a couple other smaller genres that compose the Bible. Um, also in the Bible... Uh, Oh my gosh, Elliot, I'm blanking, help me out. I got you. It's written by real people. I covered that. No, 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 you didn't. In a different time, in a different place. So the Bible was written between 1400 BC and about 100 AD. So that's 14 or 1500 years over which it was written. And for, for reference, think about 1500 years ago from today would be 500 AD. So it's like if the Bible was started, starting to be written in 15, sorry, in 500 AD, it would be completed about now. That's a long span of time to write one book. 
right? So that means that the cultures are going to change in that time span. That means that the people who were writing it at the beginning think very differently from the people who write it, the later books, who wrote the books that come later. Right? So the Bible is a very complex, very, I'm going to say hard to understand if you don't know what you're reading, book. You can't just pick it up and instantly understand everything that's written on those pages. And it's also written halfway around the world, you know? It's in modern-day Iraq, Israel, Turkey, Syria. Um, that's the area where it was written. And if you went over there today, you would have a really hard time understanding their culture, right? And that's their culture in 2021. Now imagine that you went over there 3,000 years ago. You're going to have a very difficult, if not impossible time, understanding what's going on. They don't have, obviously, the technology we have. They don't speak the same language as us. They don't have the same traditions and customs, economy, like culture. Everything would be entirely different. So we have to keep in mind that when we read the Bible, we're reading an ancient, ancient book written by real people in real history in a real place and time. Is anyone confused or intimidated yet? Because I would be. This is very... Uh, I'm, not trying to, I'm not, not trying to say this to like scare you away from reading the Bible. Actually, the opposite. Elliot and I and everyone at Waterstone believe that the Bible is incredibly helpful and relevant to us today as it was 2,000 years ago. We believe that we can learn um, to grow in wisdom and in truth, and we can learn to actually connect with God by reading the Bible because of how he worked through history to make it come together into the book that we have today. That doesn't mean that it's easy to understand, though. So what we're going to do is kind of talk through some of these issues and how we can approach the Bible in a more educated, um, more accurate way. So oftentimes, the youth group, you'll come and we'll kind of tell you, this is how Christians should act, right? Like, save sex for marriage, love your neighbors, um, like, don't be jealous, don't be too prideful, right? This is actually more of a message that's going to teach you how to think. Because whether you have in the past or you will in the future, you're going to encounter people like Richard Dawkins. And they're going to say, no, the Bible, I can never believe in the Bible because of the violence or the misogyny or the slavery. And you're going to have to know, how do I, how do I answer them? Like, so hopefully... After tonight's message, you'll have a better idea of how to answer people when they have tough questions about the Bible. Like, this verse doesn't make sense. No loving God would ever say this. So let's look at it. Um, the three issues that we're going to cover, like I said, are slaves, women, and violence. So I'm going to kind of lump the first two together and address them similarly because there's similarities in how we understand them. Slaves and women, kind of controversial topics, right? So in Exodus 21, verses 2 through 6, uh, this is the second book of the Bible. So this is written a long time ago, probably around 1300 BC. Um, he writes, If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. 
What the heck? That sounds so brutal and barbaric, right? Why would anybody want to like obey this law, which is supposedly handed down by God to Moses? It sounds so terrible. Why would we want to follow this? Uh, let's look at another one. Deuteronomy 25, 11 through 12. The two men are fighting, and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant, and she reaches out and seizes him by his private parts. You shall cut off her hand, show her no pity. Amen. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Have a good night. No, I'm just kidding. But this is like a real law in the Bible that we read, and we believe this is the word of God. Show her no pity, cut off her hand. What? Why? It's like, it's like referring to women as if they're like property. She can't do that. She does that. I'm going to chop her hand off. Like, what the heck? What are we reading here? I want to address, like, why this is written the way it is. There's, there's, these other, there's two other codes of law, which are even older than the laws that we read in the Bible. They're called the Code of Hammurabi and the Code of Ur-Namu. I think it's Ur-Namu. It's like Ur-Namu is the oldest human code in existence. And the laws that they wrote are similar, but they're different. For instance, they also had slaves in Babylon and the surrounding nations, but they did not have laws that said, let your slave go free. Basically, if you're a slave in Babylon, you're born a slave, and 100%, you're going to die a slave, right? Whereas the Hebrew Bible, even though they still have slavery, it's just a little bit better because it's like, you're a slave, you're going to be a slave for six years, but then you're going to be released because God sees humans as humans. It's not like there's like different categories of people. Like you're born a slave and that's what you are. Like you are a slave. Whereas there's other people who are not slaves, therefore they're hired, right? Like that's kind of the, um, the surrounding culture that Israel entered into. And God says, okay, I'm not going to do away with slavery, but we're going to kind of slowly move you away from slavery. Like, sure, someone could be a slave for just six years, but then let them go. you got to let them go and be free, right? So we see, like, we see slow, progressive growth. And same with women. Um, in the surrounding cultures, women, um, they could not testify in courts because their words were not as true as men's, according to the surrounding culture's laws. Um, women were more of property than they were human beings. So obviously a lot of things that we today would strongly disagree with. So why does the Bible seem to kind of echo that? And I think that's because, to put it simply, God works in human history. He meets human cultures and civilizations where they are and acts with them in a way that they understand. But he doesn't leave them there. He slowly moves them forward. So that's all in the Old Testament. When we move to the New Testament, what do we see? Uh, can you put Galatians 3? In Galatians 3, so this is now about a thousand years later, Paul writes, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. This is the important part. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, there is no, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So some people might point at that and say, he still says that they're slaves. But for the time that this was written, this is mind-blowing. This is a mind-blowing statement to make. 
wait, wait, wait. Slaves are the same as their masters? We are all one in Jesus. Women are the same as men? What? Not the same ontologically, but like equal. Like we're being, what? This is a mind-blowing statement because we have to remember, what's the C word? Big C word we have to remember tonight? Okay, say it like you're awake. A little bit better. Context. We have to remember this wasn't written in 21st century America. This was written in 1st century Palestine where women were not equal with men. Slaves were not equal with their masters. We have to remember that we have the benefit of things like the Enlightenment, the U.S. Constitution, which says all men are created equal. Um, we have the benefit of looking back, and it would, be, it would be wrong for us to look back and say, why didn't they believe like us today? God is slowly moving through cultures and through history. And we see this progression. I made this visual. You can throw that up, Al. You can see in the Old Testament, people were there. Right, so like in the progression of human history, uh, seeing women as equal, seeing slaves as equal, they'd only made it to there. About a thousand years later, there's a little bit of you know progress. God says, yeah, actually, like you know, working with the culture, there's still slaves, but now I'm going to tell you that they're equal with people. So there's the implication that how we see women and how we see slaves changes over the course of history. Uh, to the point that, you know, where we are today, it's like, yeah, of course, obviously, men and women are equal. Of course, there's no such thing as slavery because that's just a terrible thing to, to practice, right? To say that one person is less than another person who owns them. No, of course not. So we're, that, that's what God is where we are today. So we broke this down into two categories, Elliot and I. Um, in the one category, there are things where God demonstrates... Uh, growth, where God, the way that God talks about this subject changes throughout the Bible. So, for instance, the treatment of women, slavery, valuing children, and um, social outcasts, lepers, or rules about being unclean in the Old Testament—they kind of change throughout the Bible. In the Bible, um, for instance, if you had a skin disease like leprosy, you were to be put outside the camp. And Jesus is like, no, 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 we're going to treat everybody the same. Jesus touches people with leprosy. You never did that back then. It was just like breaking the law of Moses because they were unclean. Jesus says, no, we're going to welcome everybody into the circle now. So there's some things where it seems to shift and change. But then there are other places where God doesn't change his mind, where there's not this idea of growth or progress from one testament to the other. And that would be things like justice for the oppressed. God consistently wants justice for the oppressed. He does not change his mind about homosexuality, adultery, or respecting your parents. I know that homosexuality rings a couple bells for some of us in the room. I'm not going to go into it tonight, but we will go into it in the next couple weeks. But for, for tonight, it's important to know that homosexuality, God doesn't see it as natural in the Old Testament, and he still doesn't see it as natural in the New Testament, so we don't see that, that growth or that change. Does that make sense to you guys? More or less? That's how we understand um, this idea of like growth or progress or something like that within the Bible. 
So whenever someone kind of points out, like, slavery is in the Bible. Women are mistreated in the Bible. It's like, yes. Because for one, that was a product of the culture they were in. And two, God does show growth from one testament to the next one. So let's move on to violence. I know this is kind of a really, really superficial, like, 30,000-foot like, view of these things. I'm kind of rushing through them. But there are so many verses that we could dive into. I'm just kind of give you a, trying to give you a, um, a framework to think through these things so that you can see the Bible and think like, huh, this is interesting. I wonder why this is written the way it is. So hopefully you don't have the reaction of Richard Dawkins and say, oh, this God just is terrible and regressive and doesn't know anything, right? Because obviously brilliant people have studied the Bible for 2,000 years and we still believe it to be true and accurate and helpful. So there's got to be more going on beneath the surface that we can't see than what's on the page. So let's talk about violence. Uh, in 1 Samuel uh, 15, we have this passage, um, and this is written about 1,000 years before Jesus. In 1 Samuel, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, this is God talking to uh, the king of Israel, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Wait, what? Did God just tell Israel to kill children and infants? What's wrong with him? Why would he say something like that? In other words, God's saying, don't leave a single Amalekite left alive. I want every single one of them dead. And then uh, verse 20, a couple of verses later, Saul says, I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. So to get this straight, God is loving and gracious and forgiving, and yet he told King Saul to completely destroy this people group, including babies, children, women, and all of the men. Why am I supposed to believe in this God? Why on earth would I want to be part of anything that he's doing in the world? It doesn't make any sense. But the interesting thing is, if you skip forward a couple chapters to chapter 27, Throw that up, Bell. In 1 Samuel 27, so this is now uh, 12 chapters later. Now David, the next king of Israel, and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. Now wait a minute, didn't King Saul, a couple chapters earlier, destroy every single one of the Amalekites? The infants, the children, the women, and the men? But how in the world are there still Amalekites left for David to go and fight? Either the author of 1 Samuel was wrong and he just like had a brain fart and like miswrote, or he was using some sort of literary device which may not have been literal, but may have been more of an exaggeration. Does that make sense? So for instance, if Elliot makes me really mad one day and I say, oh, I'm going to kill Elliot and then he's still alive the next day. You'd say, wait, Ethan, why didn't you kill Elliot? You said you were going to. You would say, 
So like, no, no one would think that way because that's crazy, because that's just how we talk. And yet we assume that people in the old days didn't have access to exaggeration or hyperbole or anything like this. So what most scholars believe is that this, that's all this is, is that that was their way of saying, like, that the Israelites may have fought the Amalekites in battle, and they may have spanked them real hard in that battle, and that was the way that they would have said that, would have said that. And we killed their infants and children and women, and no one was left alive. And that just means that they kind of were victorious in battle. That they really waged a good war, they fought really well, and destroyed their army. Right? So clearly, if there are still Amalekites living 12 chapters later, they didn't kill all the children, women, and men. So that's again why we have to be aware of the context in which the Bible is written. Because if we assume that they're writing exactly as we would, and they think exactly like we think, that's where we start to go down the wrong trail. And we're putting them into a category where we see ourselves. And we're off by 3,000 years, the other side of the world, and people that we have no idea how they thought, how they wrote, how they acted, and so on. So all this is to say that there are really tricky passages to interpret in the Bible. There's going to be passages that I'm going to wrestle with probably for my entire life. I'll get to heaven and I'll say, what the heck, God, why'd you put that in there? That threw so many people off. But at the same time, the Bible is not just a squeaky clean, perfect, like easy to understand manual for here's how to live your life. It's human, written by real people, in real time, in real place, in real history, in a real context. And it doesn't have all the answers. And there are parts of it we need to wrestle with. So hopefully this message tonight, uh, your small groups and everything else will help you, um, kind of give you a system or a framework to understand those things through. Okay. I know I'm not going to give you every single answer tonight, um, but hopefully it can give you a little bit of a point in the right direction of what is the Bible, how do we read it, and how do we best understand it. And then the last thing, before we do the Q&A, thank you for coming up. Um, the last thing is that we understand the entire Bible builds up to points to Jesus. Jesus who uh, praised and admonished women, and he said that, yeah, women are awesome. And he even forgave women who, according to the law, should not have been forgiven. He elevated the role of women. He also reached out to the outcasts and to the slaves, and he said, you guys, I'm going to reach out and I'm going to touch you. Even if you're unclean, even if you're sick, even if you're dying, I'm going to risk making myself unclean and touch you. Jesus reached out to the lowest members of society and touch them. And then of course, Jesus was not violent. Instead, he died for his enemies. Where human culture throughout history says, I'm gonna destroy my enemies and kill every one of them. Jesus says, I'm gonna die for my enemies. I'm gonna lay my life down so that they don't have to die. So when we, when we think about Jesus, when we read the Bible in light of who Jesus is and what he's done, it kind of changes everything. Don't get hung up on one or two or three little verses and miss the entire picture of where God is going. He started here. Human history starts here. And Jesus points it this way. He says, there's so much more for you guys. Let's move to equality, freedom, joy, peace. And we are chasing the way of Jesus, trying to live that way. 
green, white, and white of who he is. So there's some questions that we got. Yeah, yeah, we got a few all right, so a couple, yeah, if you've got any more tech questions, text me and I'll be able to see them up here. Um, but even uh, the third one's going to kick in the mouth because I read it and I'm like, whoa. Um, but uh, here is kind of an easier one, uh, but a really good one. Um, how do you interpret, uh, or what is your interpretation? I think this student wants to probably put you on the spotlight in the sense of what do you actually think, not just what do people think. Uh, about Genesis 1 through 3. So just for those of you guys who don't know about as much, that's a creation account, right? Where everyone seems to argue over is it six literal days or is it something else? And because evolution doesn't seem to line up with uh, six literal days, so then we have to choose, right? Christianity or science. Yeah, um, so my personal yeah. opinion. My personal opinion is I think that Genesis 1 through 3 is going to be read more as a poem than as a literal account of this is exactly how things happened. Um, the reason I think that, in one minute, is just that the way that people wrote back then was not literal. They didn't have science or textbooks or like the same attention to accuracy and detail that we have today. So for us to read it through our 21st century lens and assume that they wrote the exact same way that we think today is just, anachronistic. It, it doesn't line up with the timeline of how history works. And it's kind of unfair to the author of Genesis to say, you should have written how we write today 3,000 years later. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't work like that. Um, I think that there's a difference between something being true and something being literal. And I want to open up one can of orange, but oh, that's great. if it's a poem, it can be true without being literal. We can yeah. talk more about that afterward, whoever wrote that in. That's a great, that's a great point. But yeah, like you would say, you know, I, I love this girl so much, uh, my heart's going to explode. And it's like, you're not on your way to like Porter Hospital. You're just like, <laughs> I just really into this girl I went on a date with, right? So exactly. it's, it can be literal, it can be true, but not true. Really. So, uh, cool. Next question is this. How do we know the Bible is all that God has shared with us? So there's not more. So in other words, if you think about like Mormonism, or um, Jehovah, Jehovah Witness, or uh, like Islam. Islam, exactly. Like Islam is totally like, oh no, we totally believe in Jesus. They do. We don't. We don't really do with God, and we don't believe he's the last prophet. He was a prophet, right? So how do we know as Christians that God really, the last time He revealed to the world, um, is is everything that we know summed up in the Bible? That's a tough one. It is, and I guess the short answer I would get is from Lee Strobel, his book, the, the Case for Christ, where he says, he's kind of addressing this question, like, with the New Testament specifically, why can we settle on those 27 books and not the other, like, seven apocryphal books that the Catholics use? And he basically says that those books chose themselves. They were the ones most being copied, because he had a hand copy back then. So people were copying by hand, distributing it. Someone else was like, oh, this is so good. They copied it, distributed it. So that by about 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea, they kind of came together and they were like, yeah, it's pretty much these 27 books have been, ones, have been the ones that have been most widely circulated. People generally agree that they're true. And we have to remember that they're written by humans. Sorry, I didn't really set that up very well. But they're written by humans, meaning that we're the ones who kind of have like put them together, compiled them, and it's, if, you're, if you're interested, there's a lot more, there's a lot deeper you can go with this, looking into the history of why we settled on these 66 books. Um, but 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that was, yeah no, totally. I would add this about how we know there's not more in the Bible. And Jesus is, a Christian believer, Jesus is the ultimate, like, um, revelation is the word used, of God. So in other words, Jesus is God, he's in person. So if you look at scripture, every book that's been written, um, who we know, there's only one in the New Testament I can name, we don't know who the writers is Hebrews, but the people that chose who could have been did. Um, every single book was written by um, someone who knew Jesus directly. And so um, Jesus is recording his life, recording his teaching, and then what's corollary, in other words, in other words what came from and so a lot of theologians would say, yeah, Jesus is the ultimate expression of God. So then that is the end of God revealing things to us. Now, God might reveal something to you for a personal reason, but it's not going to be, you know, um, like Patrick Calzone, write down this new revelation. Um, right? Or Joseph That's how Mormonism started. It is. Like, yeah. right? So Indians, Indians, Native Americans were like the uh, Arabs, whatever. Watch this out, brother. All right. Uh, don't actually. All right. Real quick, I want to say one thing. We've got one last question. Um, I, I want to make a point about prescriptive versus descriptive. Yeah. Um, so in the Bible, so think about this. If you were to read the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, what do you think you know who Frederick Douglass is? Okay, if you can sign up, you're racist. All right. So, uh, so Frederick Douglass. If you were to read the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, you would read things about his life that were really hard. I mean, he was treated so poorly by a slave owner, right? Now, let me ask you. Prescriptive is like a doctor gives you a pres prescription, right? Take these pills, your ear will go away, right? Descriptive is you describing to a doctor, this is what happened. Prescriptive says, go do. Descriptive says, this is what hasn't done. With Frederick Douglass's portions of his autobiography that are really terrible and just gritty to read, is that going to be prescriptive? Or is that going to be descriptive? Descriptive, right? What sometimes people will do, whether they're well-meaning, so in other words, they're atheists or non-Christians who, who don't know that they're doing it, or they're not, someone like Richard Dawkins, who's intelligent and educated enough to know what he's doing, he will take prescriptive passages and talk about them as if prescriptive, and then say, look how bad God's character is. When the reality, what's actually happening is God is not trying to hide how bad and ugly his people have been and still to this day can be. And he allows that gritty, tough to read um, narrative to stay in his holy word so that we don't just learn from the good examples, but we learn from the bad. So when you read something, you have to ask, is this prescriptive or descriptive? All right, last question. One last thing about the previous question, too, Please. just to throw a wrench into everybody's bibliography, is, um, the Ethiopian church, which is the oldest Christian church in existence, has seven more books in the Bible than we do. So rest with that for a little bit. All right. Um, corrupting. All right. Here, here's the last one. Um, oh, man. There's so many good ones here. Oh, cuss. There, you guys kept texting, and now I can't find the one that someone texted. All right. Here it is. This one's really – I thought it was a good one. Um, God has spoken radical ideas to his people before, right? So especially through Jesus. So why wouldn't he just outright tell the Israelites that slavery is wrong? So you said that God seems to be slow to leading people. But in the New Testament, the idea that like women's voices matter, everyone was like, what? Uh, pause? Um, do you mean like 
like men that look like women, and they're like, no, 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 I literally mean women, right? And he's like, well, not little girls, you guys look He's like, no, 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 little girls too. So, so Jesus seems to say pretty, like, contrary things to culture. Why didn't God just do that with his people in the Old Testament, specifically with slavery? That's a great question. I kind of skipped over this part, actually, in my life, so I'm glad you brought it back up, wherever you were. Um, but you have those pictures, Taylor, in the slideshow of the little kids. Basically, the, the way I'd answer it is like this. Um, if a little baby's born, you wouldn't just say, okay, now that you're born, you're three days old, it's time for you to know how to do your taxes and get a job and file your ETFs and file your 401ks and plan for retirement. And you're also going to have to go to work every day, get a full-time job, two weeks paid vacation every year, you know, start a salary, start up a 40K, right? You don't just dump all these things onto a baby the second they're born because humans don't just, like, instantly change. They can't just absorb, like, oh, okay, this is everything I need to do to have a good life for the next 80 years, right? And the same is true of humans in general. You don't just, like put a little baby in a gym and say, okay, pick up these 300 pounds, let's go. Like, why can't you do this? There's, there's this just like slow growth. And God is a father, right? We as Christians believe that God is a father. And what does a father do? He slowly guides their kids um, as they grow. And as they grow stronger, as they grow wiser, like in first grade, you don't learn the quadratic equation, right? You don't learn that until like high school or middle school or whatever. Because you can't just dump all this information on a little baby and expect them to understand all of it. And I think the same is true with humans over history. You can't just say, this is what a perfect society looks like, now do it. When they're still in this like barbaric age of like, there's tribes and tribalism and like, the richer people have slaves and the slaves serve them and they're born into that so that's all they know psychologically you can't just like suddenly not be a slave because slavery is just suddenly evolved you know like God reveals himself slowly over history and I think like Elliot mentioned that's kind of the sign of grace that he's patient with us as we mess up and we do terrible things to each other but human history I think from you know, 2,000 years BC to where we are today has shown growth um, in slaves and women and just culture in general. We're more peaceful, a less warlike. Our hearts may still be just as twisted, but there is slow growth because God's a good and patient father. Let me ask this, because I, I think I'm, I'm thinking if I was a student and I heard your answer. Yeah. All right, so God is gracious, just like a father, and he slowly teaches us the right way. If I'm a slave 4,000 years ago, that does not seem cool and gracious, that God is slowly <laughs> teaching my master that it's not cool yeah. and slave, right? So um, I don't know if I have a great answer for that. I just thought, like, golly, that's a hard question yeah. to ask that. Um, I will say, and this is not to defend slavery, it's really important. Um, we as Americans, we think when Wilberforce, um, Western Africa, we think about slaves in that sense, um, a very American, Western-centric type of slavery. And that's not the biblical slavery. It's not, at least it's not um, the uh, Hebrew, uh, ancient Hebrew uh, form of slavery. It's really yeah. different. That's why you have a passage about what if the slave wants to stay. Uh, because they might actually say this is what Yeah, I circle back to that. So, yeah. Yeah. Because there's, there's laws in the Bible that protect the slaves, too. Like the slaves had rights. And yeah. the master couldn't violate those rights against the slaves. Yeah. So, like, that's why even though they still have slavery, 
the Bible seems to be a little bit better than the surrounding cultures. It's like, wait, slaves have rights? What? Yeah. It's just God slowly moving them forward. Question for you, and there's something different, but I will just be lost on We'll cover it so that you guys know, and we'll just go some moments after this. Um, you talked about Genesis 1 and 3, or 1 through 3, being poetic in your opinion, right? Mm-hmm. And then you could read it literal or poetic, but either way, true. How do we know whether or not, say, like, Jesus dying on the cross and resurrecting in three days um, is literal or true? Who got that? <laughs> sorry, sorry. Thanks. No, it's okay. So, in other words, how do you know whether to interpret that poetically or literally? That goes back to uh, the slide I had toward the beginning of my message where I was talking about the different genres that we read in the Bible. So, like, Genesis 1 through 3. If you read Hebrew, you would look at it and say, this is clearly a poem because of the repeated imagery. It's like the first day, the second day, and the way that there's like these things called chiasms and parallels. And it's like, this is clearly a poem. Whereas when we come to Jesus, it's written more like a history book. And there's things like his disciples after he rose from the dead caught 153 fish. It's like, why would they include that detail unless it was actually true? So it's like this is not being written as a poem so much as this is a historical account of things that actually happened. So that's why you have to pay attention to the genre of literature that you're reading. Because remember, the Bible is not just one genre. The Bible is many books of many different genres. So just pay attention to that. Um, normally in our English Bibles, it will kind of like indent when it is a poem. You know, like it has that like, what do you yep. call that? Like a, it looks like a poem if you look at it on the page. Whereas when you read the Gospels, the stories about Jesus, it's more just like blocks of text because it's a story recording yeah. a historical account. So yeah, that's good. Just like Harry Potter is like historical fiction, right? So it's based <laughs> on a true story, but not all the details are there. Um, I do love watching that. Madison, I just watched all seven Harry Potters in two weeks, and I was like. At the very end of it, can't tell you what happens if you haven't seen it. I was like, is this based on a true story? Um, I think it's so funny. Who else still hasn't seen any of them? Yeah. Boo. You guys are all the racists <laughs> in the house. All right. Hey, let me say a prayer for us. We'll go to small groups. Thanks for being here tonight, guys. And then we'll come back down. Small group leaders, let's try to be back down. Um, what time is it now? Right around uh, the quarter past mark. So, cool. All right. God, thank you for uh, ways that we learn um, and grow. I pray that every student here, um, I know we've got probably more questions than answers leaving this room. So may we discuss well in small groups and be honest and engage not just our, our hearts with you, but also our, our minds. Um, yeah, uh, bless this night. Thank you for this space. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool. All right, guys, we'll go to small group. We'll see you back here in about 30 minutes.